Hello and welcome to the news meeting where we throw open the doors on the argument that happens in newsrooms everywhere, every day. It's that argument about what should lead the news, what should follow, what matters and why. I'm Adam Bolton. I'm a veteran journalist of some 40 years experience. I was Sky News's political editor for 25 years, then uh, its editor at large. I was also a columnist on the Sunday Times. During that time, I interviewed prime ministers, presidents and pop stars. And on this episode of the news meeting, I've got to decide what should lead the news, what follows and in what order. Joined by three journalists from Tortoise who are going to pitch their top story of the week to me. And we're going to try and make sense of what we know, what it means and perhaps even whether it should take the lead. So from Podimo and Tortoise, this is the news meeting. Well, James Harding is away this week and it's a great pleasure and indeed an honour to be here standing in for him as the first guest host on the news meeting. And joining me are Dave Taylor, who's an editor at Tortoise. Uh, He was deputy editor of The Guardian US and before that he was head of news and US editor for The Times newspaper. Hello, Dave. Hi, Adam. Also here, Alexi Mostris, uh, who is Tortoise's investigations editor. He's the host of his podcast, Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. Hello, Alexi. Hello. And uh, Liz Mosley is an editor at Tortoise. Liz has worked for The Times, The Telegraph, Heat and Elle magazine. And her story has led the news a number of times on the news meeting. In fact, Liz is the reigning champion. She has won three uh, of her pitches, come second once and come third once. Alexi come first once, come third once. Dave has uh, come first once, come second once and come third twice. Now, of course, this is slightly different from a usual uh, news meeting uh, because we're only going to talk about three stories. Each of them has brought one story rather than having to work down uh, that uh, long list, uh, which often uh, starts meetings. And it's not easy to pick out the winner. Sometimes one story easily pushes everything out of the frame. Think of the death of the Queen, for example. Other weeks, uh, you're scrabbling around to find a lead. And I think this week is probably fairly evenly balanced. And Dave, Alexei and Liz are going to pitch one story each. And then together, we're going to try and figure out what's really important about that story, what it means, whether it should lead and how much it matters to all of them. But before we hear the pitch from each of them on their story, here's a quick reminder of some of the stories of the week. For more than two decades, David Carrick, a serial rapist, hid behind his police uniform. When the planet's best-known eco-warrior joins the protest, it becomes a global event. Greta Thunberg was detained by German police after several days in which she urged people to join the demonstrators. The Church of England will not propose allowing same-sex marriage. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. Scotland's gender recognition bill has been stopped in its tracks, prompting fury from Scotland's First Minister. Nicola Sturgeon called it a full frontal attack on Scottish democracy. The match of the day presenter Gary Lineker revealed that the loud moans had been played by a hidden mobile phone taped to the back of the set. It was quite hard to just carry on the, the, the pre-match build-up and take it seriously. So those are some of the stories of the past seven days or so. But what do my guests think uh, mattered most? Let's start uh, with their long stories, short, sort of in a sentence or a headline. Before we go into detail, 
what they've picked. Let's go start with you, Dave. Together in Electric Dreams. Nice. Right. Can't wait to find out what that's about. Alexei? Is the online cure worse than the disease? And uh, finally, Liz? Not another bad apple. Not another bad apple. Right. Fascinating. Well, let's start with Electric Dreams. Yeah, well, it's the story of the collapse this week of British Vault, which was, according to Boris Johnson, going to deliver thousands of jobs and, as he put it, put Britain at the helm of the global green industrial revolution. Scroll forward a few months and it sort of looks like the perfect example of the empty promise of Johnson's boosterism because you've got a patch of land, an empty space and an artist's impression. The idea of a factory that would have produced millions of batteries for the British car industry to make uh, electric vehicles. Now, I have an interest to declare here because I was actually hired by uh, British Vault to interview their executive team. Oh, there you go. Uh, Did you know uh, that, Dave, before you pitched it? For for internal purposes, and the idea was to come in as a journalist and just ask all all the questions you could ask. And I have to say, I think that at the management level, there were perhaps some serious people there. Well, it's, you know, they seem to have... Uh, a timely and brilliant idea which really tapped into certainly the Tory government's vision of Britain leading the way and being unshackled uh, in industrial terms after Brexit. But it, it, I, I'm guessing if you were asking the tough questions behind closed doors, you were presumably saying things to them like, well, has any of you at the top got any real car industry experience do you have a product? Have you got any firm customers? And aren't you burning through your money uh, at a rather rapid rate, many years away from um, being able to generate any revenue? And when you compare and contrast with, say, you know, China's biggest uh, manufacturer of batteries, as I understand it, when they wanted to open a plant in Hungary, first they got um, Mercedes-Benz on the hook and then they built the plant. Liz, you... you ever gripped by British Volt at any stage? I'm thrilled by batteries. I'm really ah. here for battery chat. Um, I think I, it's, a, it's a story of the UK falling behind where everybody else is moving in terms of green future. I feel sad for the people of Northumberland who would have been no doubt excited at the prospect of something, you know, legitimately that looks like investment. Um, I don't know that the ins and outs of how an organisation like that fails thrills me from a news perspective, but that's not to say that it's not an important story. And what are the what are the consequences of this? I mean, is there a lot of taxpayers' money down the drain, for example? I'm actually not sure there is because I think there was a government notional pledge to to back them with a hundred million pounds, but I think it was all conditional on them hitting targets. And I think part of the reason that they've collapsed this week is that the government has said, well, you haven't hit your targets, you're not getting our money. And investors who are looking at this are thinking, well, you're burning through three million pounds a month in salaries um, and you don't have a product. You don't have customers and you don't have a product. So it's easy to see why uh, investors would walk away. And, And what are the consequences of this? I mean, how many jobs are lost? Well, again, the boosterism of the former prime minister um, suggested thousands of jobs would come to the northeast because of this. And the, I guess the thing that you know looms, certainly analysts reflect on, is if you can't 
make and manufacture batteries in the UK, will the UK car industry, which is substantially, um, you know, dependent on foreign investment, find a new home? I mean, some people are actually saying if we don't have battery production, we won't have a car industry. Exactly, exactly. I think there is hope for Blythe in all of this because it does seem like the site itself is highly desirable. You know, Blythe's in like a brilliant spot for um, for renewable energy. It's got this mad connector with Norway, where which is like part of this, you know, grid of power that we don't really think about very much, but where, you know... I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it? really fascinating. You know, the idea that, you know... If we if we have a, a surge of of renewable power from wind in any given day, Norway can can fill its gap. So, Liz, if 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 we're doing this story, what's the angle that you'd be interested in in pursuing? <laughs> Love it. Um, I guess if you can get inside of it and do it as a long read. You know, the, a, a, a tale of, a history, a tale uh, of yeah, a, a tale of corporate mismanagement. If that's what it is, that's always there's a bit of Schadenfreude there, I guess. What about you, Alexi? What, what angle would you take? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting about you know what happens now, uh, what happens to the site. I think, I mean, just reading 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 about it here, there's this big Chinese battery company that's working on a battery company in, in Sunderland. So. It doesn't seem like the demise of British Volt is necessarily like synonymous with the demise of the whole British battery car industry. Right. Okay. So British Volt, the collapse of it's gone into receivership, uh, would be uh, Dave's story. Let's let's move on to Alexei. What, what, what's your your story? So in in two thousand and eight, I think I was working for the Guardian, and uh, I went to see a speech being given by Richard Thomas, who was then the Information Commissioner, and he warned at the time that we were sleepwalking into a surveillance society. I don't know if you remember that that quote. I think something's happened this week that makes me think that we're sleepwalking into a censorship society. So the online this is about the online safety bill, which is this very kind of long running, widely drafted piece of legislation that is supposed to get rid of. Uh, illegal content online, whether that's like content encouraging suicide or whatever. The government wants to just make the UK the safest place to be online. Uh, and the and online... They've, they've sort of flip-flopped on this a bit, haven't they? they? There's been debate after debate. Should we require social media companies to kind of get rid of harmful content as well as illegal content? Or is that too onerous? Or should we put tech executives in jail? Or should we not? So that, And part of the problem is that the bill is trying to do about 100 things. So it's always been problematic. It was debated this week in the House of Commons, and it was about a five-hour debate. And about three hours into this debate, something happened that, like, pretty shocking, which was that the minister said that anyone posting videos of people crossing the channel that show that activity in a positive light could constitute an offence and that social media companies would have to remove that content. So what the government is doing is using this bill to, on the face of it, challenge very, very kind of public interest issues like like suicide and anorexia and, and all of that stuff. But it's sneaking in other stuff via the back door. Is, is it sneaking in or is it just um, being over-enthusiastic? It's got... You, it's, it, whichever it is, it's troubling, right? Like, Rishi, Rishi Sunak has said one of his five big commitments this year is to crack down on small boats. Like, a few weeks later, you find that in this flagship internet bill, 
Social media companies now have a positive requirement to trawl through all their material, find images that portray small, small boat crossings in a positive light, whatever that means, and remove and them. And how, how did we get here? Because um, I think I'm right in saying that, that Great Britain, United Kingdom, is, is ahead of the pack in trying to deal with what is clearly a problem. Yeah, and, and this is why it becomes quite an interesting kind of news topic because there's lots of stuff in the online safety bill that is actually quite important because I think many people would agree that you know in the last 20 years it's been something of a wild west so you've got the the, the Europeans trying to to regulate social media through the Digital Services Act the thing is called you've got us and we we and the UK and the Europeans are kind of like leading the pack um, as I said, what's, what's, what seems to be happening is that because it's so widely construed, this piece of legislation, it enables the government to put in what seem like politically based objectives into like a legal framework. And, and there's been a lot of controversy this week about making tech executives criminally liable, as I understand it. I mean, are, are we really going to see you know, um, Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk banged up in Wormwood Scrubs. So th this is... <laughs> so So we, we wrote right a weekly tech um, column uh, and I led this week on the tech executives going to jail, right? And I think actually, in retrospect, that was a big mistake because I think it's a massive red herring. T tech executives in, like, other industries already go to jail if they screw up, like in the construction industry. And in practice, you're going to have to, like, hit a pretty high bar before you get stuffed in prison but all of the coverage was about the tech executives going to jail stuff meanwhile i mean i don't want to harp on about it but if i post a picture as a newspaper say or on my social so on my social media distraction I'll, really yeah I mean, if i post a picture of a smiling like refugee in a boat google or facebook now has the the legal obligation to remove it what's that about what do you think there's what what regulation is is necessary so I'm with Alexi, and I didn't. I had no idea about the um, small boats thing you've just outlined. Extraordinary. Although lesson learned when Andrea Letsom's fielded as the spokesperson, probably our alarm bells should have been ringing that there was more to this than met the eye. I, I guess um, I'm really interested in the sort of the the movement of of different pieces of legislation. So I'm keeping half an eye on the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill, which is coming behind the Online Safety Bill that has content in it that surely will end up being in conflict in some way, shape or form. The principles of the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill is that you should be allowed to say what you want in the context of an academic environment. So it's a sort of counter cancel culture bill. And broadly speaking, I'm totally here for it. But I can see instances where straight away those two things are going to come bumping up against one another. And I just wonder how that's going to play. Dave, what do you ring? I'm keeping an eye on... The public order bill, which is a, <laughs> which is a, which is a bill built entirely out of rushed amendments that were discarded yeah. in the last session. So there's there's definitely form in a government that is bringing things forward. Well, so, so basically, a sort of pincer movement of more repressive yeah, it, measures it, it, on free power, speech. It feels like a power grab, doesn't it? Um, across the across the piece, um, which is which is worrying. I, I'm interested in in. One of the things I would really like to find out is if it's right that Britain is leading the pack when it comes to regulating the internet, because you know I, I 
it does feel with this piece of legislation that it's trying to solve every woe and it's um it's it's this hydra of a bill and it's come back and forth and it's changed yeah no it's been, it's been around a lot i mean i remember being at tory conference i suppose three or four years ago yeah. and amber rudd was the home right. secretary and she was holding fringe meetings about the need for this and and we can all see basically they didn't pick it they didn't pick it up at that stage they thought it was going to be too problematic yeah and we can all see you know that i mean the molly russell inquest was was so desperate and i suppose you did have something of an accountability moment when you had the people from meta and and pinterest actually having to give evidence and and account for content but i i, I just keep asking myself is britain really capable of of holding TikTok to account or Instagram, what do they, are, are we in the lead? And how do you um, and I regulate? Suppose, I suppose in the end it comes down, to, as you say, how do you regulate? It comes down to this whole question, let's say, doesn't it, of are you a platform or are you a publisher? Oh, that old debate. Um, yeah, it's still, still relevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it, yes, yes. I mean, I think, look, it's, it's kind of totally understandable in a way that this piece of legislation has been... Uh, so kind of convoluted because like all the way through I've seen it kind of being debated within the boundaries of what seems like a relatively like sensible set of you know you've got the index on censorship people over here who think it's it, it goes too far and then you've got the NSPCC over here who think it doesn't go far enough but all of that is relatively kind of sensible but this small boats thing is shocking so the the angle you would take in building the story whether it should lead or not would be what the government is politicising its major internet legislation in order to achieve political ends in an unacceptable way. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. Let's move on to Liz. What are you proposing? Um, So, uh, on Monday, um, one of this country's worst ever sex offenders uh, was convicted of a um, uh, 20-year, I don't want to call it a campaign or a programme, it was 20 years of horrendous crimes um, against 12 women. Uh, His name was David Carrick and he was a serving Met Police officer. And and he he pled guilty. He did, he pleaded guilty um, to, I think, 40 nine offences including 24 counts of rape and a series of other absolutely horrendous things harassment and abuse and all kinds of the full bucket of horrendousness Um, and the most extraordinary there are a number of absolutely extraordinary things about the situation is that um, the Met missed nine opportunities to spot and uh, remove him. Uh, There were two outstanding complaints against him, one for malicious communications and one for burglary when he first passed 
the Met vetting procedures in 2001. Further complaints, this time of physical domestic abuse, were made against him by an ex-girlfriend during his probation period, at which point he could have been removed. Um, He was approved as a firearms officer in 2009. The same year, he was brought to police attention following what is called a domestic incident. And then he passed vetting again in 2017, despite in the interim having been a suspect in an investigation into harassment. It was 18 months ago in July 2021, after the murder of Sarah Everard, uh, by serving Met Officer Wayne Cousins, when another claim of rape was made against him, for which he was arrested. But even then, the Met did not think it was a serious enough uh, situation to suspend him from duty. Uh, He was placed on restricted duties and within weeks he got his gun back. So your presentation would be basically shock horror. I deliberately picked not another bad apple as my opening line because for those people who buy the bad apple narrative they would they would read that not another bad apple goodness me Krista Dick said uh, previously uh, that it was a wrong one who had killed Sarah there are increasing numbers of people who are not just punters like me who sit outside the situation but people who have been inside Baroness Casey being one of them um, Zoe Billing being another who have conclusively decided that this is not a bad apple scenario. This is a systemic, misogynistic uh, culture that permits and, moreover, enables men like Carrick to stay in post. And it is extraordinary to me listening to uh, Andy Marsh this morning on Radio 4. He's the head of the College of Policing, making a tacit acknowledgement as part of his prepared media train presentation that the code of practice on vetting is woefully inadequate. That's not his language. That's my interpretation of what he said, in that they are, are going to need to pivot away from prioritising fraud and financial corruption in their vetting procedures to focus more on violence against women and girls from now. How is that now the plan? That's my question. What do you think, Dave? I think it's there's a massive question, which is, can women ever trust the police again? And I think that it really, going beyond the... the specifics of this awful case I think we've lived through one of the worst examples of failure of leadership um, that that you can think of and it's completely dismaying to me that you know um, that the vetting process is so opaque and hidden from view um, I think we need to see a complete overhaul of the police disciplinary process which seems to happen substantially behind closed doors in porter cabins with on no no clarity. I, I mean, it should be said that, that Mark Rowley, Sir Mark Rowley, the new commissioner of the Met, taken over from Cressida Dick, is saying he's got a list of sort of tens of thousands yeah, of police I, he wants to get rid of. Yeah, I, I think he, I think he, and he's also sort of um, wrung his hands in public about how very difficult it is to to get rid of people, and it would be easier if he was running Tesco's or something to get rid of people for shoplifting. So there's a there's a there's a massive system failure and he and granted he's trying to get a hold of it as for how i would like us to sort of deal with the story one of the things that has leapt out at me is um the center for women's justice who did a super complaint a couple of years ago which was about um the connections between serving police officers in domestic abuse cases and the failures of how that seems because to I be... think that, that's the important part of this. We're not just talking right. about 
the public coming in contact with the police very often we're talking about their partners their family that that's right so so patterns of behavior that 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 then have an impact on how the police go out and face the world and deal with the world so i just read this line that um Harriet Wistrich from from there is is saying they started with nineteen cases and they've now got two hundred women who have come forward to say they have been victims of domestic abuse by serving police officers and I think that's a sort of cohort that we could investigate and 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 try and illuminate. Just while we're talking about the Centre for Women's Justice, uh, ten days after Carrick's arrest, the Centre for Women's Justice submitted their. Um, uh, letter to then Home Secretary Priti Patel asking that the current inquiry um, that was announced, um, at the Angelioni Government Commission inquiry, should be put on a statutory footing, which of course would compel witnesses within the police to submit documents and give evidence. Priti Patel resisted their very brilliant letter. This was 10 days after Carrick's arrest and they cited it in that letter. And then two days ago, Priti Patel went on record to urge current Home Secretary Suella Braverman to make the inquiry statutory. So when she had the power, she said no, and now she's saying she must do this. It just stinks. It just really stinks. Although we should point out that um, the London Mayor, the Commissioner of the Police, did actually um, move against Cresta Dick and used his powers to uh, ease her out um, when after the Everard case and also after the case at uh, Charing Cross Police Station of all that sexist banter and all the rest of it. What about the response this time round, Liz, from government, from the Home Secretary and others? I, I don't know how long the process takes to make the decision to make an inquiry statutory. I don't know if it's as simple. I'm sure it isn't. Legal things tend not to be to say, OK, as of now, we'll proceed on this basis. Part one hasn't been, but part two can be. But to me, it's it's very hard for me to see why that would not be a decision that you would make, even if you make it for the most cynical political reasons. Just make the decision, make the call. And Alexi, what, what angle do you think we in this news meeting should take on this story? Well, I, I know that this is shooting myself in the foot, but this is, is in my mind, clearly the biggest story of the week. <laughs> um, I, I, just some of the numbers are just like it, more than a thousand met police officers and staff have previously been accused of domestic violence. I think it came it came out in the last couple of days, uh, and no disciplinary notices have been issued against any of the staff who failed to. Um, pick up Carrick and to, to prevent him from carrying on as, as an officer. So it, it, it shows to me that, 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 that this case isn't about one, one officer, it's about an institutional failure. And if you get an institutional failure, then you need an inquiry to sort that out. So I, I, I would think that that would be the angle that we'd want to push at. Right. So we've got these three stories. We've got uh, toxic masculinity and worse in the police. We've got the collapse of British Vault. And we've got the online harms bill. So, Liz, let's start with you. You can't nominate your own story. Which would you choose between British Vault and online harms? I know you said I can't, but I am going to nominate my own story. <laughs> I just think the gap between my, this story no, no. and those two is so massive. Yeah, but, I mean, let's suppose there's a super injunction and no one can report anything about the metropolitan. Alexi, then. Alexi's, Alec, the, the government trying to make it illegal to post negative things online about their daft policies. Dave? 100% I'm going for Liz's story on the police. Alexei? Yeah, ditto. Okay, well, I mean, I've got to sum up now, and uh, 
I mean, I have to say just anecdotally, I've known uh, women in the police force. I knew a young woman in the police force who was wondering whether she should go on. She went to see two senior police women, both of whom said, get out now, it's too toxic, which was not particularly uh, comforting. And I think just looking at these stories, the British Vault story, I think is very important. And if I was the editor of the Financial Times, I would probably lead with that story. There's a massive issue about renewable energy, the move to electric cars, where Britain is in that race. That's acknowledged by politicians. But I think in this case, the problem about the story really is that it didn't happen. So in the sense, it, it's not DeLorean. It's not masses of money to use that dreadful Boris Johnsonism spaffed away by the taxpayer. It's just a very sad story about a failure which leaves Britain with a lot of problems. So that would probably be third on, 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 on my list. Bronze again. I'm sorry. Uh, I think the story about the online harms bill is very important, shaping up. I agree that it's a lot of it is about the, the, the Tory party. I just think the problem for the public is that many of the public probably think it's a good thing they're doing something about this. And, and exposing, if you like, the duplicity or the underhand way in which the Conservative Party is going about it. Again, I think it's a very good story. But I think, as we all agree, it doesn't have the shocking impact of, of uh, what David Carrick has been up to, particularly after uh, the Sarah Everard case and, and a very kind of real issue about policing in this country. I mean, there's been a focus on the Met, but Hartford police were already in, also involved. This is about the police force. It's about, you know, that, that standard sort of juvenile thing of uh, quis custodiet ipsos custodies, who, who should guard the guardians, uh, uh, as he put it. And throughout my career, there have always been question marks about the police. You know, there, there was all that corruption in the Met, in Soho and elsewhere which seemed that people like Sir Robert Mark got a lid on, but in getting a lid on it, it seems they've opened up something in, again in the very, very important area of um, the rights of women and, and, and uh, the rights of minorities and how women should be treated. So I think I, uh, Liz has won again, I'm afraid. I'd take no pleasure in it this week. It, 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 Much it, it, rather have pitched a silly story about Love Island and come last. I'd like to uh, thank uh, very much indeed uh, the team uh, who've joined us uh, here today, uh, Liz, Alexei and Dave. I congratulate them all on the uh, stories uh, which they've produced. But that is it for this week's uh, meeting of the news meeting. Uh, James Hardy. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. We'll be back in the editor's chair next week. It's been uh, very enjoyable for me to be here. He's going to have another trio of Tortoise's top journalists trying to convince him that they've got the story 
that matters most. Please join them next time on the news meeting.